This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with two authors from a recent manuscript titled Primary Cytoreductive Surgery for Advanced Stage Endometrial Cancer, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analyses published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. The authors are Ben Albright, who is now in his first uh, clinical year in the fellowship, at uh, Duke Cancer Institute, Division of Gynecologic Oncology, of course, at Duke University in uh, North Carolina, and also Rebecca Previs, or as we know her, Becca, uh, from uh, her fellowship here. We uh, certainly miss her at MD Anderson very much. So, Becca uh, and Ben, uh, congratulations, and thank you so much for your time during this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Ramirez. We are so excited to be joining you today and to share, you know, our recent work with you. Thanks very much for having us. Well, thank you again. I I think this is uh, just a really great paper and uh, one that uh, should be highlighted and I think certainly very, very pertinent. So I'm going to be going back and forth uh, between the the both of you uh, with regards to the question. And I'm going to start with Becca um, and with regards to the the concept of obviously patients with advanced uterine cancer, uh, metastatic uterine cancer. We often draw a lot of our information from how we treat advanced ovarian cancer. Traditionally, cytoreduction has been a standard. However, you know, given the rise in neoadjuvant chemotherapy use in ovarian cancer, I think it becomes increasingly more relevant to ask the the, the same for advanced endometrial cancer. So with that, I wanted to just uh, ask you if you can tell us as to why you performed this study. Absolutely. You know, that idea for the study originated, like many other research projects, from a clinical observation. Mm -hmm. Over a short time period, I had several patients present to my clinic with a new diagnosis of metastatic uterine cancer. In almost all of these cases, the women had presented with postmenopausal bleeding, which had prompted endometrial biopsy or DNC. And for women with high-risk histologies like serous or clitor cell or grade 3 endometrioid, we obtained a CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, um, either before they presented to me or when I saw them in my clinic. And the reason for that would be to rule out distant metastatic disease. These are high-risk histologies. And in several cases, patients had evidence of carcinomatosis, evidence of lung nodules, pleural effusions in some cases, and a few of these patients actually had intraparenchymal involvement of the liver. And so this clinical observation prompted me to really take a deep dive into the literature. We had a number of lively tumor board discussions here at Duke, and what I learned was you know, high quality data are lacking for women with advanced stage metastatic uterine cancer. And due to the relative rarity of advanced stage uterine cancer, we often extrapolate management of these women from what we know from the ovarian cancer literature, just like you said. However, applying an ovarian cancer treatment paradigm to a patient with uterine cancer, well, that fit is really imperfect. And we've known for many years that there are limitations to this approach. There's differences in the natural history, differences in the molecular biology, the cells of origin, and survival. So really, the short answer to your question, Dr. Ramirez, is we made a clinical observation where there wasn't a lot of available evidence, and we wanted to know more. That's great. And um, 
Now, following up on that, um, what are the recommendations uh, from the NCCN guidelines regarding these types of patients, the patients with advanced uterine cancer who are presenting to us uh, with, with metastatic disease, as you mentioned? What, what, what does the NCCN tell us? In a patient and who you suspect extrauterine disease, the NCCN guidelines recommend imaging as clinically indicated and if not previously done for high-risk histologies. So let's say you do the imaging and you actually detect extrauterine disease. Then the guidelines diverge as to whether in your clinical opinion, if that patient sitting in front of you is suitable for primary surgery. So first, let's consider a patient who is fit for surgery and has abdominal pelvic confined disease. For this patient, the NCCN guidelines recommend total hysterectomy, bilateral salpingophorectomy, surgical staging, and debulking. Mm. And I will highlight that there is a parenthetical statement that suggests consideration may be given to preoperative chemotherapy. But let's consider a second patient. Um, this patient has distant metastatic disease. Her diseases outside of the abdominal pelvic cavity, maybe in the lungs, for example. And she's fit for surgery. For this patient, systemic therapy and or radiation is recommended with consideration of a palliative hysterectomy and bilateral salpingophorectomy. Now, I've got one more scenario for you. Let's consider a patient who is not suitable for primary surgery. She has distant metastatic disease. The recommendation in the NCCN guidelines for this patient is for systemic therapy. Reevaluation for surgery and or radiation can be considered if her, her medical disease status improves after treatment. So then now, what do we know so far from the retrospective literature, which I presume is most of what we have or the only thing that we have um, pertaining to this particular patient population, is that heavily weighted towards primary surgery or is there an equal balance with regards to chemotherapy up front? What does the literature tell us so far? Yeah, you're exactly right. Treatment for stage four uterine cancer has historically relied on surgical resection or primary cytorejection followed by chemotherapy. Women with stage four endometrial cancer may have abdominal carcinomatosis or resection can require extensive surgery. This type, this type of surgery, we all know, can be associated with significant morbidity. Mm -hmm. And as surgeons, again, we know firsthand that complications can delay initiation of postoperative chemotherapy or even worse, patients may have such severe complications that she develops progressive disease and never gets treatment. Prior to our study, really the best data we had available was another meta-analysis that was published in 2010 with Dr. Bristow as the senior author. This included an analysis of 10 studies, um, and patients were primarily had, sorry, 10 of those studies had patients with primary disease, and four of those studies included patients with recurrent disease. So this was a mixed cohort, and it was found that among patients with advanced or recurrent uterine cancer, complete site reduction to no gross residual disease was associated with the best overall survival outcomes. So then, you know, and that, that you bring up an interesting point there because also 
um, I think it leads me to the next question is that a lot of times patients will ask, well, do I have uterine cancer? Do I have ovarian cancer that is metastasized to the uterus? And now obviously it's, uh, you know, distant metastases. And then the biopsy, you have a biopsy that says, you know, serous histology or Mullerian origin. How can we tell whether the disease comes from the uterus versus the ovaries in these studies or in, or in these patients? You're right. This certainly can be a clinical conundrum for GYN oncologists, pathologists, and for our patients. Like you mentioned, we certainly have this site of origin debate at our weekly tumor board. We are so fortunate at our institution to have an awesome group of GYN pathologists, Drs. Bentley, Strickland, Hall, and Bean, and we spend a lot of time reviewing slides with them at Tumor Board, and actually, they'll review slides with us any old time, (laughs) but let me share with you what they've taught me and consider two clinical scenarios. First one, you take a patient to the operating room for definitive surgery for suspected advanced stage disease, and maybe you don't know the origin at this point. You remove the uterus, the tubes, the ovaries, and any other tissue with obvious disease. What the pathologists have taught us is that the convention is that if you, say, have serous cancer in the endometrium, then we assign uterus as the primary site of the cancer. But let's consider an alternative scenario. What if you don't have a surgical specimen and you only have a biopsy? Mm -hmm. If that's the clinical situation, then it really depends on where that biopsy is from. Now, if it's an endometrial biopsy that shows serous carcinoma, well, bingo, then we can assume it's an endometrial primary. Mm -hmm. But if it's a peritoneal or an ovarian biopsy, then we really can't be completely sure what that primary is until we've looked at the endometrium. So another tool that we have and can use is immunohistochemistry for WT1. Although almost all tubo-ovarian primaries are WT1 positive, only about 50% of endometrial primaries are WT1 positive. So this can suggest an endometrial origin if it's negative, but not a perfect test. Yeah, great algorithm there, by the way. Um, So now uh, I'd like to uh, ask Ben a few questions, and uh, these are obviously particularly related to the uh, study. Um, So, Ben, uh, what were the primary and secondary objectives of the study? So, we had two related primary objectives for our study. For both, we sought to compile cohorts and case series of patients with stage 3 to 4 endometrial cancer undergoing primary cytoreductive surgery. As endometrial cancer more commonly presents at early stage, we knew that the literature primarily consisted of small institutional cohorts. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to compile these smaller studies to present a comprehensive look at the role of primary cytoreductive surgery in this population. Our objectives with this compiled data were first, to assess the frequency of reported proportions of either maximal um, or optimal residual disease cytoreduction, with maximal defined as being R0 or no gross residual disease, and optimal being defined most commonly as less than one centimeter of um, residual disease. And secondly, we wanted to describe the impact of achieving these levels of surgical debulking on progressions-free survival and overall survival in this population. Then we had a secondary objective that was to assess what patient characteristics are associated with the ability to reach optimal cytoreduction. 
So then, um, you know, so one of the things that I always comment to the to the uh, fellows in in the journal is that one of the key elements of the uh, manuscript is the methods and the methodology, and uh, and certainly with very reputable journals, uh, that often is the the longest uh, section of the uh, manuscript. Um, so true to that, with this uh, with this study, uh, tell us about your methodology and the inclusion criteria. Absolutely, and, and methodology I think is important is particularly important for systematic review and method uh, meta analysis. Mm -hmm. And we follow the widely utilized Cochrane guidelines, um, which are are published and um, you'll often see Cochrane reviews. Um, but we sort of uh, we just followed their guidelines that are published online um, and uh, to try to um, as this is a very accepted um, methodology. So the first thing we did was um, when we sort of theorized the study was to um, consult with a biomedical librarian, um, which is an essential step in any systematic review is they are sort of the experts on um, how to search um, the biomedical databases, what databases are, are most relevant to search and, and really what um, keywords and, and, um, and search terms to include. Um, so um, we'd like to credit Dr. Samantha Kaplan, who was a co-author with us on, on this manuscript, and she helped design a search of three medical or three major databases, the mm -hmm. Medline database, which is searched via PubMed, um, as well as Embase and Scopus. Mm -hmm. And these databases were searched from inception to September 11th, 2020, um, when we were conducting the study. And the search was based around three thematic the um, searches. Mm -hmm. um, so we searched for uterine cancer, for advanced stage and for primary cytoreductive surgery, and then combined these three themes um, with um, the crossover or the Boolean term and. Um, so from there, um, once we had our search results, um, study selection was performed in um, a sort of a standard way um, for, uh, for meta or for systematic review and meta-analysis, which is um, to have two different reviewers perform selection independently, um, and then any disagreements between those two reviewers are resolved by a third independent reviewer. Okay. Um, once the articles were selected for inclusion, um, data was extracted onto a standardized form, um, and we um, performed meta-analysis using methodologies um, suggested by, um, by Cochrane, um, and that includes the um, meta-analysis for the proportion of patients achieving maximal or optimal cytoreduction, um, which is simply performed by summing the numbers from the individual studies. And then meta-analysis of the association of suboptimal um, cytoreduction on progressive and free survival and overall survival um, was calculated using inverse variance weighted averages of logarithmic hazard ratios, um, which is the recommended method. We included studies that were um, retrospective or prospective trials, cohorts, or case series, and included at least 10 patients with stage 4 endometrial cancer undergoing primary cytoreductive surgery. And these studies needed to report at a minimum on the proportion of patients that received an optimal or maximal cytoreduction. Um, we also secondarily required that studies be published as English language manuscripts in or after 1990. And we excluded studies that were representing um, dupl duplicative data from the same institution or the same patients. Great. And I, I noticed that you also used the Newcastle-Ottawa scale. Um, and I was wondering if you could uh, explain to there may be some members in the audience who may not be familiar uh, with this and uh, if you can just tell us about um, what that is and, and how do you determine study quality from this? 
Of course. So, so as this topic it was completely lacking in prospective randomized literature, our included studies consisted entirely of retrospective cohorts and case series. The Newcastle-Ottawa scale is one of multiple published methods that have been proposed for scoring the quality of retrospective um, studies in systematic reviews. It was created by a, a group of experts um, via consensus and is widely used in the systematic review literature. Um, it classically includes eight total categories with nine possible points um, for study quality. Now, it's worth noting that it is an imperfect tool and that some of the judgments are somewhat subjective or maybe more or less applicable to a particular review question, depending on exactly um, what you're trying to study. Um, so we did slightly modify the scale to eight total points um, by reducing the um, comparability question um, to a maximum of one point rather than two um, and just gave the point for having a um, adjusted hazard ratio, like a multivariate adjusted hazard ratio as, a as opposed to a univariate hazard ratio. Um, and then we um, defined the adequacy of follow-up for this particular study as a median follow-up of at least 18 months. So ultimately, among our 34 included studies in the review, the majority of them were high quality by this scale. Um, about half of the studies um, did not report adjusted hazard ratios and so lost one point um, for that. And then 12 studies lost a point for um, either too short of a reported length of follow-up or not reporting um, what the median follow-up was. And lastly, three studies were missing um, outcome assessment for over 10% of the patient cohort. Um, however, despite these generally high scores, it's always worth um, remembering that any retrospective data is inherently limited and prone to bias, even with high quality work. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. Um, so now we get to the punchline. What did we find? What were the results of the study? Um, and, you know, certainly tell us about how many patients in total were included. Um, what did we learn from the study? So as I mentioned, the total of 34 studies met our inclusion criteria. Um, and this, these studies collectively included um, 2,920 total patients um, with either stage 3 or 4 endometrial cancer undergoing primary cytoreductive surgery. Among the 34 studies, 27 of them reported survival data by the extent of cytoreduction and were included in that aspect of the meta-analysis. Um, the studies were all retrospective single or multi-institutional cohorts um, that collected data over between six and 24 years. Um, and overall, um, combining all the studies together, we found that 52% of patients were reported um, to be reduced to no gross residual disease or a maximal cytoreduction, um, while 75% of patients um, were reported to reach optimal cytoreduction with less than one centimeter of residual disease. We found that suboptimal and submaximal cytoreduction were both significantly associated with worse progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 2.6 and 2.2 respectively. Um, and there was a similar association with overall survival with hazard ratio of death for, of 2.6 for suboptimal and submaximal cytoreduction. And we performed sensitivity analyses where we limited to um, studies that were considered high quality and found that our results were overall um, consistent with the primary analysis. So now, Ben, one, one of the things that I was wondering, and I was wondering if you looked at this, was the rate of successful saddle reduction associated with, with whether you had stage three or stage four or with even histologic subtypes? 
Yeah, so um, that's definitely an important point. And um, sort of the way these studies reported data is they tended to either report on stage four patients alone or report on stage three and four patients collectively um, as sort of an advanced stage. Um, so studies that included stage three patients alongside stage four patients had higher rates of maximal cytoreduction, um, about 70% versus about 40% for studies of stage four patients alone. Um, there was also a difference when considering um, the, the optimal or less than one centimeter res um, residual disease threshold of about 82% versus 63%. Mm -hmm. um, and so while stage was clearly important, histology was not associated with the extent of cytoreduction. And generally similar rates um, were seen across studies of endometrial, um, endometrioid histology as opposed to clear, serous or clear cell or carcinosarcoma histologies. Yeah. So then as a follow-up to a point you brought up as well, um, you know, certainly obviously in ovarian cancer, we focus so much now on R0. Um, and I was wondering if you had looked at whether there was any benefit from cytoreduction to less than one centimeter. In other words, is it, is it worth it? to go to surgery when you know you're not going to get to R0, but perhaps you're going to leave less than one centimeter residual? So I think that's an important question. And unfortunately, um, I think our ability to answer that question is somewhat limited. We did not find any significant difference between the meta-analysis hazard ratios for PFS or OS between looking at optimal versus maximal cytoreduction, though the collective N of the included studies likely limited our power to detect a small difference. And it's also worth noting that most of these studies only reported results by either maximal or optimal cytoreduction, but not both. Mm -hmm. So therefore, this comparison is really a comparison between studies from different institutions rather than comparing patients within a single within single institutions. And this um, probably increases the possibility of bias from differences in patient populations as well as adjuvant treatment um, in, in different places. Um, so that just really limited our um, ability to, um, to give a good answer to that question. Yeah. And, and also, uh, I was interested in the rates of successful cytoreduction. Did you notice anything in, with regards to differences among different races or even perhaps also uh, patients with different uh, BMIs? Yeah, again, I, I think this is a very important question. Um, and while our study did include a, a very diverse population um, with, uh, thir with 13 different countries um, represented um, within the study and a variety of geographic locations within the U.S. represented, um, our, our second, and our secondary objective was to assess for patient characteristics that were associated with the likelihood of maximal or optimal cytoreduction. Unfortunately, almost no studies reported data um, by any characteristic, including race or BMI. Um, and this is disappointing considering the growing literature that's out there on racial disparities, particularly for black women in outcomes for endometrial cancer. Um, I was actually just reading yesterday a, a fascinating study by Dr. Kimmy Dahl um, that was published yesterday in JAMA Oncology regarding, regarding such disparities. Um, the authors did a really interesting simulation study using SEER data and showed that endometrial thickness on transvaginal ultrasound is less sensitive for the diagnosis of endometrial cancer in black women as opposed to white women, with a large estimated difference of about 50% um, versus almost 90% um, for white women. Um, and black women are also more likely to be diagnosed with both advanced disease and non-endometrioid um, histology than white women. So although we could not really address that question, I think it's something 
really important to consider um, with research moving forward. Yeah, and actually, you know, interesting you mentioned that. Um, Dr. Camino uh, just this morning agreed to do a podcast on that study, so we have that podcast uh, coming up as well. I really I agree with you. I think this uh, is a very relevant uh, point. Um, now, uh, it's it seemed, and I, I can't recall the actual percentage, but it seemed like a fair amount of patients did not receive adjuvant treatment. Um, do you have any speculations as to why this might have been the case? Yeah, so the majority of included patients did receive adjuvant therapy with either chemotherapy, radiation, or a combination of the two. However, reported rates of no adjuvant treatment or um, hormonal therapy alone ranged from between 0% to up to 28% in, uh, in, in, in the individual studies. Unfortunately, the studies did not really report on um, adjuvant treatment um, for, for successful versus unsuccessful cytoreduction, so we cannot really assess for how um, any bias was introduced into, in this regard. I would suspect that some of the patients had low-grade endometrioid histology and received hormonal therapy, um, but likely the majority of the cases involved patients who were unfit for adjuvant therapy um, due to poor performance status, and that could be either from a mix of the disease and their comorbidity or from inability to recover from a major surgical operation. Yeah. And then now, Ben, I, uh, one additional question before going back to Becca. Um, and, and certainly not, not a question that I expect that, uh, an answer that you gathered from this particular study, but more so your thoughts, you know, a lot of times, obviously with ovarian cancer, we talk about, well, it's not the surgeon is the biology of the disease. Here's a similar scenario. So do you consider that the issue here is disease biology versus surgeon aggressiveness? So I think that both the ability to achieve successful cytoreduction and the impact of a successful cytoreduction on the risk of progression or death for both diseases is a combination of both disease biology and the surgeon aggressive, surgeon's aggressiveness. A cancer that is more widely metastatic at diagnosis is going to be more difficult to debulk and ultimately have worse survival outcomes. Unfortunately, we can never have a randomized trial that compares optimal to suboptimal cytoreduction, so we are really limited to retrospective data to answer this question. And the heterogeneous nature of cancer spread, as well as surgeon capacity for radical surgery, makes studies comparing cytoreductive surgery to neoadjuvant therapy complicated to, to design, um, particularly if you want them to be truly generalizable. Um, that being said, I referenced earlier the issue of racial disparities in endometrial cancer, um, and the fact that there are so few prospective randomized trials of upfront treatment of advanced stage endometrial cancer relative to advanced stage ovarian cancer um, represents a disparity in a way. Mm -hmm. um, new, numerous trials of advanced ovarian cancer have been conducted studying upfront treatment with neoadjuvant care, uh, chemotherapy or primary surgery. And while ovarian cancer is more likely to present at advanced stage, endometrial cancer is far more common overall and represents a growing problem in the United States in particular, um, with black women disproportionately diagnosed with advanced disease. Mm -hmm. The question of neoadjuvant chemotherapy versus primary cytoreductive surgery in endometrial cancer is an important and worthy uh, of a prospective study. Um, and rates of endometrial cancer, as we know, are rising in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, at our institution, we see a particularly high number of patients with this disease, um, perhaps due to the um, combination of both high local rates of obesity, as well as a surrounding rural population that does not often seek regular medical care. 
And lastly, I think that it's worth mentioning that there are other important areas of research besides direct um, prospective treatment comparisons for both ovarian and endometrial cancer. We cannot assume that every surgeon is the same and different surgeons have different training as well as local hospital resources to support uh, radical surgery for widely metastatic disease. Mm. While we can strive as a field to strengthen the surgical training and radical resection over the long term, it is likely that many patients will benefit from greater local accessibility of neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, for, um, uh, for patients with advanced disease unlikely to achieve optimal cytoreduction reduction with the locally available providers. Um, research and reform is needed that focuses on ensuring that patients have access to high-quality gynecologic oncology treatment that maximizes both the length and quality of life for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And um now, Becca, a question regarding more sort of like day-to-day practice, uh, and, and you know, I'm not sure that we can gather from this study that this information, but uh, how can we appropriately select patients um, with advanced endometrial cancer for primary cytoreduction? Yeah, I think as a specialty, we're pretty good at this, and with the caveat that, of course, there's always room to evolve and improve. And here's what I mean. We've gotten really good at assessing patients' medical comorbidities, their functional status, predicting risk through algorithms and calculators. We've improved perioperative and postoperative care through enhanced recovery pathways. Our ability to image cancer and detect distant metastatic disease is really better than ever before. So are we perfect? Well, No, nothing is, right? Mm -hmm. Can we improve upon what we know and our tools? And I think absolutely yes. I think we need more data. And I think by really approaching research in the way that Dr. Albright just outlined, we will really then begin to select the best treatment for each patient at the precise time in her disease course. Yeah. Um, Now, Let's go back to Ben. Uh, we come to that point in the manuscript where we talk about limitations. Um, can you highlight those to our audience? Yeah, and I, I think I've sort of um, alluded to some of these already, but the, I think the primary limitation of our study is in the observational and retrospective nature of the available literature that we've reviewed. Um, all res- retrospective research is prone to bias, and the included patients were treated by many different institutions with potentially very different practice patterns, um, most notably in the use of upfront chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, a wide range of years were included with evolving standards of care. Um, And we were also limited by the reported data within the individual studies, um, particularly, as I mentioned, in regard to patient characteristics that were associated with the ability to achieve achieve a successful cytoreduction. And lastly, I think it's important to consider that most of the included studies um, did not also report data on patients who were undergoing um, neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy. So we cannot account for differential utilization of this approach that may have led to um, different rates of successful cytoreduction between studies. Great. Well, Ben, thank you so much. And I'd like to then just uh, uh, conclude with a few questions. I always like to ask the authors with regards to like their practice today in their office. What are they doing? And, and Becca, I'll, I'll go to you for, the, for this uh, uh, question. Regarding, um, do you use laparoscopy or do you think that there's a value in the scoring systems when 
trying to determine whether patients with advanced endometrial cancer should be candidates for uh, cytoreduction, just like we do in ovarian cancer. Right. So right now for patients with uterine cancer, this is an area with very limited data. For my patients with advanced stage ovary cancer, you're right. I absolutely rely on diagnostic laparoscopy and scoring to predict which patients are best disposition for surgery or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But for my patients with advanced stage uterine cancer who are fit enough to undergo cytoreduction and have radiologic evidence of resectable disease, my current practice is currently to perform a diagnostic laparoscopy mm-hmm. before committing them to that big vertical midline incision. Mm-hmm. You know, my rationale for that is this. One, our imaging capabilities are pretty good, but not perfect. And imaging can miss subtle disease or vice versa. Something I thought was equivocal on a scan may in reality be quite amenable to resection. Mm-hmm. And two, if I determine that a patient has unresectable disease via laparoscopy, then I can close her five millimeter port site incisions and get her right on new adjuvant chemotherapy. And so then I've potentially avoided a futile laparotomy, an extended recovery, a prolonged hospitalization, and I can get that patient on systemic treatment sooner. Yeah, totally makes sense. And then that obviously then leads me to the next question when performing neoadjuvant chemotherapy in those patients, a question that frequently comes up in disposition conferences or even from the patients, three cycles versus six cycles prior to attempting that cytoreductive surgery. (laughs) And I absolutely hate committing to this number as well. So at this time, the reason for the lack of commitment is because there is no widely accepted number of cycles of neoadjuvant chemo that should be recommended to a patient um, with advanced stage uterine cancer. In theory, the idea behind neoadjuvant chemotherapy is that tumor burden is reduced, which then could lead to a less extensive surgery and potentially decreased morbidity. So we've talked a lot about not having large randomized trials that have evaluated this approach. But what we do have are studies that have suggested that neoadjuvant may be associated with acceptable outcomes. And in fact, the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for this patient population is increasing. And actually, I want to give a shout out to our collaborators for this project. Uh, Drs. Jason Wright, Melamed, and Wang, our collaboration has actually extended to another publication that is currently online and evaluating the utilization of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for patients with stage four uterine cancer. Mm. And I would definitely encourage your listeners to check this publication out. I'll give you a little sneak peek, but we used the SEER Medicare database and showed that the use of new adjuvant chemotherapy is increasing for patients with advanced stage uterine cancer. And there was no difference in survival between those patients who received neoadjuvant or primary cytoreductive surgery. And neoadjuvant chemotherapy was not surprisingly associated with fewer perioperative medical complications. And from other observational and retrospective studies, the number of cycles of chemotherapy varies. It's from three to four to six to eight. Mm-hmm. And you'll get a different number depending on how many GYN oncologists you ask. Mm-hmm. But 
until we have further data, my current clinical approach is to evaluate the patient before each cycle. I re-image after three to four cycles or if her clinical condition changes. And if imaging suggests resectability and that patient is a surgical candidate, then I offer interval surgery. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'll, I'll highlight it again. The molecular biology and the natural history of uterine cancer is very different from ovary cancer. So with that being said, more cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy may be offered in some clinical scenarios and may benefit some patients. So with each cycle, with each patient, I weigh the risk and the benefits of surgery versus the potential benefits and toxicities of more chemotherapy. Well, fantastic. And thank you for sharing the, the preliminary results of that uh, <laughs> upcoming manuscript. And, and I'd like to get to, to hopefully get you to commit to another podcast uh, while we're on the air for that paper as well. So I look forward to speaking to you about that, uh, those results as well. So then now I wanted to ask you, obviously, uh, you know, both you and Ben mentioned this, uh, you know, obviously we're relying on uh, retrospective data. Do you really think that there will ever be a prospective randomized trial in this patient population? Gosh, wouldn't that be great? I mean, wouldn't it be great to have the ability to answer every single clinical question with the gold standard prospective randomized phase three trial? You know, I, I hope. <laughs> I, I agree I'm, completely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hopeful. I, that might be Pollyannish, but I'm optimistic. And, you know, team science and our commitment to improving the standard of care for women with this advanced stage disease that, you know, we'll be able to design a trial to answer this question, but we're going to face challenges. We're going to face challenges in designing this type of trial because unlike early stage uterine cancer, advanced stage metastatic uterine cancer is still thankfully a relatively rare disease. So it would require many, many sites domestically, internationally. This is gonna be a worldwide endeavor most likely. We're gonna to have to consider really what is the gold standard for disease assessment to determine whether patients should have surgery versus the adjuvant chemotherapy. Now is that a diagnostic laparoscopy? Is that imaging? Is it both? And are there biomarkers that can predict whether one approach is better than the other? And of course, there are always the practical issues to consider, like funding and personnel and resources. So I'm cautiously hopeful and optimistic. Great. So I want to be obviously respectful of your time. I really uh, enjoyed in speaking with both of you, but I was wondering if I can ask you, Becca, one last question um, for our colleagues and also for trainees. If you can just briefly take us through your discussion with a patient that comes in with advanced uh, endometrial cancer that is asking, how do we proceed with therapy at this point? Um, what, what do you say to them? Right. This is real life. Um, and so I would love to enroll her on that hypothetical clinical trial that I just described. Mm -hmm. um, but until that's open, you know, I'm going to try to offer her own enrollment on another clinical trial if we had one available for her. Clinical trials are really the best way that we're going to move the science forward, especially for our patients with high risk or incurable cancers. Mm -hmm. 
if I don't have a clinical trial option, then I'm going to take into consideration patient factors and tumoral factors. Questions I ask myself are, is she fit for surgery? Does she have medical comorbidities that need to be optimized before surgery? What's her nutritional status? Will she be able to recover from a major surgery and then go on to receive chemotherapy? And then thinking about her cancer, where is it? Can I resect it? And if I'm not sure, would I be able to perform a diagnostic laparoscopy? And would that give me better, a better handle on where her disease is? And then finally, what's important to the patient? What's important to her family? And what are her family's priorities? So in summary, I think the best approach is an evidence-based individualized one. In medically fit patients with resectable advanced stage uterine cancer, I offer those women surgery. I know that with maximum effort, I need to resect all of the disease and that directly impacts her survival. But for a patient who's not a surgical candidate for whatever reason or has disease that is not amenable to resection, I consider alternative approaches, and by this I mean trials or systemic therapy with or without targeted therapy. And then I think about how to involve our multidisciplinary teams that just play such invaluable, important roles in our women with cancer. Well, this has been really a fantastic opportunity to learn about this topic from both of you. Um, you know, certainly I, I really appreciate your time. Dr. Benjamin Albright, Dr. Rebecca Previs, Duke Cancer Institute, thank you so, so much for uh, not only speaking to me about this study, but also for the contributions you're making to gynecologic oncology. Thank you both. And thank you, Dr. Ramirez, um, for having us on. This has been a, a real privilege and honor, and to all of your listeners, um, I'm hopeful that together we'll be able to continue to move the science forward. Thank you for having us. Uh, I look forward to listening to more of these podcasts in the future um, to hear about all the exciting research coming out. Great. Thank you so, so much.